Welcome to episode 68 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today's guest is Sally Lloyd. Sally was featured in the Development Policy Centre's 2019 aid profiles and was shortlisted for the 2020 Mitchell Humanitarian Award. Cleo Fleming documented Sally's life in Mogaloo, PNG as part of the DevPol Aid Profiles series. You can find the link in the show notes. I interviewed Sally at the Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre and the Asia Foundation a few weeks back. We were lucky to get her in Canberra for a few days as she spends much of her time in PNG. Sally grew up in Mogaloo in the western province of PNG after her parents moved there as missionaries in the late 1960s. At the time, PNG was still under Australian administration, which it remained until independence in 1975. By the age of nine, Sally had learned to assist her mum in delivering babies, and by age 16, Sally had established the first preschool in the area and was teaching children in both English and the local language of Bedamuni. Sally has remained a part of the community ever since and splits her time between Mogaloo and Brisbane, although as Sally says, it's far more of Mogaloo and far less of Brisbane these days. In this episode, Sally and I discussed the 2015 drought in PNG. As that drought worsened, starved and malnourished people were arriving en masse at Mogaloo's health clinic, having spent days traversing the harsh and rugged terrain. In response, Sally began to document the unfolding crisis and was instrumental in gaining the attention of both the international media and the humanitarian sector, who would come to the aid of the people of the Western province. Sally was instrumental in the local and national response to the drought, and it was an honour to hear that story in our conversation. In this episode, we also discussed the state of rural healthcare in PNG broadly, including the important role of community health workers and how there aren't enough of them, and those that are working are in many instances not being paid adequately. For this reason, Sally and her team are looking at how they can work directly with community health workers and bypass the bureaucracy. As we celebrate International Women's Day this week, I can't think of a better woman to have on the show on this day than Sally Lloyd. Sally shares an insight into a life in PNG that most of us would otherwise never know or experience. Before we go, we're proud to present this episode from the Development Policy Centre, a leading think tank for aid and development serving Australia, the region and the global development community. The centre is hosting two major conferences in the next six months. The first is the Pacific Update from 24 to 26 June in Suva, Fiji, and the second is the PNG Update from 20 to 21 August in Port Moresby, PNG. Both events address the most pressing challenges and opportunities for economic and social development in our region, and proposals for presentations at the two conferences are now being accepted. If you'd like to share your work with the development community, then we invite you to submit an abstract. All details can be found at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. As I mentioned earlier, Sally Lloyd was featured in one of the three aid profiles released by the Development Policy Centre in 2019. In the coming weeks, I'll also be interviewing the other inspiring individuals featured in the series, each making enormous contributions to the development sector. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify and join our online communities on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. That's all from me. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Sally Lloyd. All right, Sally, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always get excited about our interviews, but I have to admit I was particularly excited to interview you, probably because I've been working in PNG so much over the last five years. And, and as I said to you last night, your name comes up so often. So it's really nice to finally be sitting across from you. 
Thank you. Maybe too many disaster related stories <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> now your your story in PNG spans back a very long time. Your parents went to the western province of PNG to establish a Christian mission in the late nineteen sixties and you went with them. What What do you remember about that time? I actually remember a lot about it, I think because it was such an exciting big thing that happened in our lives. So, yes, we went in 1968. Um, my mum and dad took me along with my four brothers and sisters um, and we went first to live at a place called Rumgine, which is still quite remote, I guess, by... Um, by Australian standards, um, and really, it was just for a for a little kid. I was five years old. It was just a fun place to be, fun place to grow up. Um, you know, swimming and canoeing and uh, in the bush and things like that. A lot of hard work for mum and dad. But as a as a young person, I don't remember a lot about that. But I do remember it being a very big adventure for our family. Before you went over there, uh, was it something that your parents had shown an interest in doing for a long time? Mum and Dad had been interested for some time, uh, not not forever, but for some time. And Dad had spoken to some uh, people who'd done some patrols up here in the Western Province. It was under Australian administration then, so there was patrol officers um, and also missionaries. Uh, Dad had done some linguistics training with a view to eventually coming and writing some language, doing some language work. Uh, and also Mum and Dad did... I think it was two years at Bible College. Uh, so we actually left our farm in Queensland and went to New South Wales to do Bible College as a family for uh, two years and then came to PNG after that. Now, of course, if you went in 1968, uh, yes, of course, Australia was still uh, the coloniser of PNG at that point up until 1975. <laughs> Yeah, not really a colony, but um, uh, I think they call it a protectorate. It was under Australian uh, government administration. So um, there was a lot of patrol officers and the, the legal system, the government system was all under Australia at that time. So it wasn't until 75 that that changed uh, to an independent state. That, that must have been really interesting. And so uh, I suppose when you first arrived up there, were there other Australians in the area? Like had the community ever worked with Australians before? My mum and dad went uh, eventually, uh, after a year or so, went into um, the Bedamini area, which is, there was people working on the border of that, some um, Australian and British as well, uh, patrol officers were working on the border of the Bedamini people, but no one was working inside that area. So it was largely unreached and untouched at that time. Uh, so yeah, very different. Um pretty uh, pretty full on for mum and dad. Um, but as I said, as children, we just thought it was a, a bunch adventure. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> An adventure, yeah. And I wonder if your mum and dad knew at the time the the commitment that you would go on to have to the, to the better many people. Possibly not. But, um, you know, it's hard when you grow up in a place like that. So unwittingly, they may have... Uh, instilled that in us because uh, when you grow up somewhere like that, you do feel a real sense of family and loyalty to the people. They become your family. So there was no other expats living with us. It was just ourselves in that tribal group and in that area. So all our friends, our family were all um, Papua New Guinean people. So you've continued to work with the Benamini people uh, in the Mogulu district of the Western province now for a period spanning half a century. You describe them there as being like, well, they are family, but for an outsider who doesn't know them, how would you describe the people? 
They're wonderful people, uh, like most Papua New Guineans, very friendly, very genuine, um, you know, very happy to adopt you into their family if you're um, a little bit culturally sensitive and, and happy to, to um, you know, understand their ways, then very willing to, um, to take you on in, as part of their family. They do have a special affinity, I think, with Australians. Uh, they feel like we're their close neighbours and, and we're their friends. So, uh, and as mission workers, I think they also realise that um, my parents were not there to make a profit. They weren't there for a business. Um, so the, there's a genuine love and connection with the people there. Um, they're, they're terrific people. I really enjoy being with them, enjoy their company. You made an interesting comment on, I think it was on Monday when I first met you or, or, or Tuesday of this week when you said that you naturally gravitate towards the Papua New Guineans. Yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> um, it it's, it's a sense of comfort, I guess, you know, um, when you grow up, it's a very informal and casual sort of just family connection sitting around the fire type of um, relationship often. And so I do find myself in situations even like um, in recent days automatically drawn to other Papua New Guineans. You know, you have a real affinity with them. So it's uh, something that I prefer. I just enjoy their company. So Now, before we move on to what's happened in more recent years, uh, including from 2015 onwards, I do know that by age 16, I think it was, you had established a, a, a kindergarten or an, an elementary school in the local area. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I actually left school in Australia. So we went to primary school in Papua New Guinea, a place called Tari, and then went to high school here. And that was kind of difficult being away from home for long periods of time. Uh, so I left school and I went back to Papua New Guinea. And, um, you know, it's it's this... I always appreciate that I had the opportunity to grow up in Papua New Guinea, so I feel like a Papua New Guinean but in some ways, but I also had the um, benefit of an education and and some social life in Australia as well. And so I went back and I was um, introduced. Mum and Dad had done a lot of um, primers and language work in the local language, so children there found it really difficult to go straight into school uh, in English, which they didn't understand, you know. So they'd never seen a book or a piece of paper or a pen. Um, so I, I just established a preschool class for children in their own talk place, you know. And so we looked at symbols and learning to recognise symbols and learning to read because there was no written language for them before. Um, so learning to read and write. And we had a lot of fun doing um, games and activities as well just to help them learn. And a lot of those children that I had in my class, I still know them today, uh, went on to do really well in school and to actually be leaders in education and other different jobs, different roles in their communities um, and also across Western Province. So it, it proved that it was a really good um, start for them in schooling. You mentioned Tari there. Do you, do you mean the province? Is Tari, that... Tari is in Hela province. In Tari Hela. is a town in Hela province. Yeah. And of course, Hela has had a pretty awful few years. It has. Um, culturally, it's very different from the people where we live. Um, uh, but there, look, there's Tari is mostly full of great people. There's just unfortunately some social um, th things that have happened in their society, I think, that have led to some tribal uh, conflict. Um, 
and that's probably been worsened for some people, but not for most. So we still have a really good relationship with a lot of people at Tari um, and in the Hela province. Um, just just a few, unfortunately, who are, have gone off the rails, so to speak. Yeah, it's so important that we remember that, isn't it? That, that when we talk about provinces like Hela kind of erupting into tribal conflict, it, it really isn't the masses that are responsible for that. No, it's not. And and I think that um, it's really sad sometimes because people do get lumped into one big category. Firstly, Papua New Guinea and then specific provinces when you, once you're in Papua New Guinea. And I worked um, quite a lot in 2018 with the people in Hela and uh, most of them are very welcoming and, and very friendly Um very appreciative of the past history of my family in in the area and close to Hela. Um, But yeah, it's just unfortunately a few. So Now in 2015, a combination of drought and frost caused, isn't that a picture of climate change? A combination (laughs) of drought and frost caused widespread starvation and impoverishment um, across a lot of PNG. Uh, what exactly happened in your community during that time? Our community is a lowland community, so the frost didn't really affect us. It was drought. Um, the frost really affected the mountain communities where they lost a huge amount of sweet potato crop. Uh, where I'm from in Western Province, uh, their main crop is banana and uh, their secondary crop is sago. Sago takes 10 years to grow again once it dies and banana takes quite some time. So uh, unlike the sweet potato crops, which grow very quickly, once we had drought, it didn't rain for months and it's a rainforest area, so uh, quickly turned to dust and the crops didn't grow or died uh, if they had been growing already. Um, And a lot of people faced real severe hunger. We found that... uh, after the rains finally did return, that problem actually got worse because um, we had a lot of insect infestation um, and, you know, because all of the vegetation had died and gone down into the ground, it just promoted this huge amount of insect infestation. And so the people's plants were not growing well and then they were um, destroyed by insects. So it was a real problem with, with hunger and people not having anything to eat. Now, you were instrumental in galvanising a response to that drought. How how did you go about doing that? And I guess a, a precursor to that is when did it occur to you that the response was inadequate? I went back to, um, to Mogulu, where, where my home is, went back to Mogulu in September um, with a couple of people who we were working on building a new elementary school. And at that time, I saw a lot of people came, as they do, because they have no voice. They have no way to speak to someone outside, really. Uh, They may ring up uh, some representative from the government, but that's as far as their story usually goes. So people came to see me. They started bringing vegetables that were wizened up or, you know, showing me their land. So I started to go out walking with some of them into some of the villages and having a look at some of the problems. And um, I was booked to come back to Australia at the end of September. So I came back to Australia. And uh, I think at that time, I talked to my boss about it. And she said, I think you better go. Um, And so I I left my work and uh, went back to PNG in December of 2015. Um, 
And again, there was no response. The people had not received any assistance in that area. And so I just started taking photographs and recording details, recording data, how many people were affected, um, you know, photographs of some of the situations. Some of them were difficult to photograph, but I asked people always, you know, do you mind? And they said, please do it because we need people to know what's happening out here. I actually took a lot of photographs and then I went to, I I contacted first um, Mike Burke from the ANU uh, and a number of other people who knew a lot about the drought and and what was going on in the food systems, uh, managed to get in contact with them and they suggested as well that I take photographs and try and bring them as as a, you know, source of information um, on what was happening. So I did that. I went up to, interestingly, to Tari, um, straight on my way out, and I went to speak to some of the uh, church leaders up there, and right there, just 50 kilometres away, 60 kilometres away up on the mountains, I had no idea of what was going on uh, just across across the way, and uh, they were quite shocked. You know, they said, we've complained a lot and we've got plenty of food now, um, but how do we get it down there to those people who need it? So... Uh, I went back to Port Moresby and Mike Burke had arranged for me to have some media interviews. Um, We also met with the Disaster Committee uh, in Port Moresby, uh, the UN and various others, and uh, they were ready to wind up the drought response across Papua New Guinea. Uh, And when, when I was able to show them the photographs, it was really a turning point then for the people to say, okay, there's clearly a need, let's do something about it. The PNG government did seem to be in denial initially. We could assume that it wasn't denial as much as they weren't aware, as you say, a lot of people in Tari, 50 kilometres away, weren't aware. Um, how do you explain the government's response? Look, I think it's totally true. I think that um, in Port Moresby, generally, especially in disasters, they don't really get to see. When you're talking about remote communities like that, no one's there, no one's looking to see what's going on. It's very easy for them to be forgotten. Um and, you know, in some ways the response they may have not heard from the uh, Western Province Disaster Committees or other peoples that there was a problem. Um, and so I think they also were quite surprised when they saw the photographs and uh, heard the evidence um, to show that there was a real problem going on there. Um, then to respond to that was another issue. You know, we did wait quite a long time before we got a good response and, and started to get some food for the people. So in that interim between when we, you know, talked about it in Port Moresby, um, quite a number of people passed away uh, due to the drought in that time. And I think it was in late March, early April that we finally saw some drought relief coming in for the people. And that drought relief, was that in the form of the the financial packages? Like were they sent money or...? No, um, there, there had been talk about that, but financial packages are useless in our area because there's nowhere to spend the money. We don't have any stores, uh, there's no roads, there's no river transport, no way for people to get anything. So in the end, um, 
the church partnership program, started doing some intervention, and then uh, World Food Program worked with Octeti Development Foundation. Um, Octeti Development Foundation supplied rice for the whole of Western Province. The government had some rice stocks in Mount Hagen, uh, which they started flying straight over the top of the people down to Kiunga, um, and we asked them to please drop some of that rice in rather than we're halfway between Mount Hagen and Kiunga. So rather than sending it for stockpiling in Kiunga, we said, can you just drop it straight into the people? So we made up a plan of distribution for that rice and um, we did finally get some of that. And then World Food Program worked with Octeti Development Foundation. We came up with a plan to distribute the rice across the board. So it was only rice, but it was enough to sustain them. And you say we, because I know that there were a lot of people involved, but I also know that you did manage the airlift of a lot of that rice. I did, yeah. I, I Because our area is quite remote, um, not many people know where to go, uh, don't know how to connect with the people. So I was able to provide all the data for, you know, villages, where they are, who are the leaders in those villages. And then working out of Kianga, able to actually go with the aircraft and show the people themselves how to distribute that food um, and work. So it meant lifting a lot of bags of rice and uh, other things like that. But it was really, really, um, really worthwhile while. It's very rewarding to finally bring those people some food relief um, and and see how appreciative they were of that. This is perhaps a naive question, but one I often wonder when when we do have uh, expats, for want of a better word, although I know that Mogalu is your community, but were you, were you affected by the food shortages? Uh, sometimes I got to eat just rice for a couple of weeks on end, but look, I, you know, I can't complain. I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I had ways and means of, you know, when a plane came trying to go and get some food at the local store and things like that. Um, but, you know, I did get to see how the people were managing or not. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't say that I was ever really hungry and I'm very fortunate in that, but, uh, I certainly got a little bit of insight into uh, into what it's like. Uh, now, obviously, 2015 was a difficult year, um, but generally in the Western province, what kinds of challenges are rural communities facing, if not just due to drought? What, what are some of the normal challenges that we see them facing? I mean, the challenges have changed over the years. Now we see a huge population explosion, um, and so food insecurity is quite a, a big thing. Um, people have not adapted to growing enough food, not growing enough quality food, so not enough protein. Um, and so health is a big thing. Nutrition is a big thing. Um, very high rates of stunting. Children who can't learn in school because they don't eat any food and they come to school and all day they don't eat. Um so health and education are really big issues for the people and they're becoming more difficult because of their remoteness but also because of their population explosion. So I think when we went in uh, probably in the early 70s, the population was estimated in one tribe, Bedamini tribe, to be about 4,000 and that's now well over 12,000 to 13,000 people. So, you know, it's quite a quite an increase and it's just getting worse. So. 68% to 70% of our population are 18 years of age and under. And uh, so, you know, it's this huge bulge of young people uh, that you have to 
provide what they need, you know, food, education, other things like that. So um, the, the biggest challenges are, are, again, the remoteness and how we can bring services to the people that they need. That is an enormous youth bulge. I haven't heard it on that scale anywhere else. That's huge. So obviously healthcare is is very important in, in what you're doing. You've got a particular focus on health. Is access to health getting better or worse? I think since the since the drought, since 2016, um, it's probably stayed the same, perhaps gotten a little worse. I think in the early years there was a lot of um, a lot of intervention put into remote communities, uh, particularly through church and mission organisations. And since those early times, it's definitely gotten a lot worse. People are struggling to uh, get any kind of health service. So in our uh, region, so we in the Strickland and Basavi region, it's quite a large area with a population of about 35,000 people. Um, there's no doctor. Our closest doctor is a one-week walk away. Uh, the health centres, there's um, about 31 health facilities. So some of those are aid posts, just remote little aid posts. Um, And we should have 116 health workers in those facilities and we have 27. And that number's falling. We've actually lost another one recently. So, you know, there's a long way to go with, um, with numbers of workers in the health facilities and also the services that are provided and also in medicines. You know, sometimes... There's no point having anything because the there's no medic, medicines available. So, you know, in some ways it's gone backwards, um, but then that's more of a challenge to see how we can turn that around and uh, make sure that the people do get the health service that they deserve. You mentioned there being 27 or now 26 health workers. Is a, is a health worker a qualified nurse? No, a health worker, uh, some of them are nurses, some of them are health officers, and some of them are community health workers, CHWs. Um, but they're very well trained, very well qualified, those community health workers. So they treat all kinds of things from um, severe wounds to uh, snake bite, um, complicated deliveries, birthing deliveries. Um, You know, they have a wide range of things that they treat. So we find that they're very well trained. It's just that we're not getting them in the jobs. No one's paying people to do those jobs. So there's there's enough health workers trained already, but just not positions available for the paid positions. This is an interesting problem that seems to exist across the education sector as well. I know there's massive issues in paying elementary teachers, and I did field work. Uh, the second half of last year and many of the elementary teachers I spoke to said they'd never been paid. And is it the same with health workers? It is the same with health workers. And, you know, in, in our remote regions, so uh, I met recently in Kiunga with some health workers who said they'd love to come and help us and they would even consider volunteering. But they have to be able to get food for themselves and their families. Uh, they have to travel. So it's quite expensive to bring a health worker Um and, and their family to come even to volunteer. That being said, you know, their pay is like for about uh, 25000 Kina, so around $10,000 Australian, you can put a health worker in a community health post for a year, including some travel, you know. So it's not very expensive really. Um, they can achieve a lot in a year in a, in a remote health post. And in theory, that's something the government of PNG should be funding. 
Is that correct? It is. Uh, at the moment, um, because we are um, largely, the, the health services are largely church organised. Um, they have church health services. And uh, at the moment, there's some restrictions, um, a, like a ceiling cap for staff placed on the church health service. I believe that there is some kind of a court battle going on in that in that sector. So uh, we, we actually would like to look at bringing in some health workers separately from that system, um, but obviously still working under the system of the health um, uh, health services under the church because they are, you know, they have a history. They're very good at um, what they do and they provide good backup services as far as doctor and coordination and things. So if a donor in Australia had $10,000, they could effectively fund a community health worker for 12 months? That's correct, yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad that we're talking about that because that, that seems like something that a lot more Australians can do. Yeah, I think that the, the, the money is there um, and I think the capacity is there. It's just that connecting all those dots together, you know, connecting people. There's a lot of good people who want to do a lot of good things. It's just a matter of them knowing where they can um, effectively put their dollar and, you know, how that can make a real difference. Now, I'm not sure if you have these kinds of numbers, but in a 12-month period, how, how many people would we expect a community health worker to treat? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have those numbers. But um, just just as a small example, just at Mogaloo, um, I think that um, very recently, a couple of weeks ago, a doctor told me who visited that, you know, he could safely say that Mogaloo is the busiest remote or rural health post in the Western province. Um, we treat thousands of people every week. So, yeah, there's the work is huge, you know, the amount of work is huge. So they're, they're looking after a catchment of more than 12,000 people. So that's, you know, for immunisations, um, general health care, so quite a lot. We had uh, uh, 18 snake bites within the past three months, um, death out of snake bites. So, you know, that just gives a small example of the numbers. Uh, they, the health post are very good at reporting and they would have that figure of the number of patients that they actually treated. Um, but it's a very busy health post at Mogulu. And also because we are a, a health centre, so a number of aid posts in the surrounding area will send more difficult cases into the health post. That's the next stop before you go to the hospital. Okay. So you currently divide your life between Mogulu and Brisbane, uh, two very different places. Um, what's that like and what does the future hold? I don't know if I'd really divide it, divide it very equally at the moment. I've spent most of the last five years in Papua New Guinea, uh, just coming home for a weekend now and again. I've got a current project of trying to get a high school for our people. So we have um, most of the students finish school at grade eight. And then if they want to go to high school, they have to walk one week down to Kionga and then they'll live in a, as displaced people in a corner somewhere. Um or the other options for the people on the other side of us to walk up to Tari and the girls don't feel safe. So all of the girls have come back. And since the earthquake and some tribal violence, they've not gone to school at all, all of the students, boys or girls on that side. So I'm trying to get a high school going and that means I'm in PNG almost all of the time. My husband's a teacher. Um, we're hoping to get him up there so we can spend a couple of years helping them establish that high school. Um, and so... We've just been up there doing some infrastructure building and some training of local people. Um, 
and hopefully that's going to open in the next week or so. So I imagine I'll be not spending much time in Brisbane. I think I'll be probably mostly in PNG for the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, I do try and pop home when I can. I miss my grandchildren and I miss my children when I'm away, but, uh, you know, there's a an end goal in sight. So, and I'm very appreciative of their support and encouragement for me to do that. I mean, surely your grandchildren have the world's coolest grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Or the most absent, I'm not yeah. sure which. <laughs> I think we, we described you uh, yesterday when we were speaking as the ultimate example of person-to-person uh, -person relationships between Australia and PNG. We talk so much about the need, uh, you know, government bilateral relationships is one thing, but the part of the relationship that excites me far more is these relationships between people um, outside of government. And your experience in PNG is just a testament to how powerful and impactful that can be. Um, so do you have any closing words, I guess, reflecting on that or for our listeners that are really inspired now and want, want to start building their own relationships with PNG, where can they go? To PNG. Yeah, great start. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it takes time. It, it really does. PNG is so much about relationships, you know, and, and um, you can't sit in a room and be separate and, you know, really get a heart for how the people are feeling or what they really need. Um, sometimes they'll just tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, but to, to really sit down with the people and just enjoy being with them um, and for them to accept you as part of their family, and then you'll really find out what they what they need. Um, Papua New Guinea is a great place. Unfortunately, it's got a bad reputation some places because of events that have happened, which it really doesn't deserve. You know, in at largely, it's a terrific place to be. Um, and, you know, some people who go to PNG, they say, I can't quite handle it because people look at me and stare and things like that. But it's just because they're very interested in you. You know, they're very interested in forming a relationship. Um, and once you get to know some people from PNG, you'll you'll understand that, you know. So if people are, there's always so much to do, especially in remote places. Um, and, and I just encourage people to get involved, you know, if they want to be. We need, um, we need people to come and volunteer who, who can build or who can, um, you know, do some health work or things like that. And what seems to happen <laughs> with PNG inevitably is people do go, they get involved a little bit and then they can't stop. <laughs> so they become a bit like me. It's addictive. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's an awesome note to finish on. Sally, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rachel. That's it for episode 68 with Sally Lloyd. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>